Violence is woven into the very fabric of our lives. Its presence and power seemingly affects and dominates every nook and cranny of our culture. Just think, our children are taught active shooter drills in their schools. Women walk through public parking lots with their keys in their hands to use as a weapon of self-defense in case of attack. We are a society obsessed with walls and security from our borders to our homes. We dedicate billions upon billions of dollars to our military and to our police. And so much of our violence is often invisible to us, built into the structures of our society. It manifests itself in our healthcare policy and in our treatment of the poor and of the disenfranchised. Is there not something violent about someone dying because they are unable to afford insulin in the most prosperous nation in the history of the world? Is there not something violent about children suffering from malnutrition amidst our economic abundance? We are a culture and a world trapped in cycles of violence. And to see this, we actually need to recognize just how appealing some of this violence is to us. Not all of it, of course. There's plenty of violence that we consider horrendous. For instance, we long for an end to violent crime. We long for an end to domestic violence in our homes, to to random street violence. But part of what it means to live in this world trapped in violence is that we often see violence as regrettably necessary and maybe even inevitable. Sometimes we even see it as good, or we at least see it as reasonable. Think of our armed forces. We have reasons and justifications for our wars and for our military interventions. We want to promote democracy, or we want to make the world safer, or we want to make the world more just. We want to usurp dictators and and bad actors to keep them from hurting neighboring countries or their own people. Now, in my opinion, often those justifications are disingenuous. But again and again, we are convinced the violence is necessary as a way of making the world a better place. And what could be more reasonable and necessary to us than the use of force by our police? Our neighborhoods need to be safe. Our homes should be secure. Coercion and the use of violence as a way of securing our safety and our security seems to our minds to be an unfortunate but unnecessary concession in this fallen and broken world. We know our lives are trapped in cycles of violence, but we cannot break free nor do we even seem to want to try because we are afraid of losing. We are afraid of the violence that could come by our rejection of violence. 
The gospel lesson today greets us with a hope and with a challenge. It offers an alternative, but one that no doubt scares us. Jesus tells those who will listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you, and if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. I have to imagine that on the one hand, this strikes us as deeply appealing. Here is something to strive for, to to long for in our world ensnared by violence. Here is is a vision of a life that has broken free from the trap of the structure of violence. But on the other hand, if we sit with what Jesus says to us listeners, then, well, I have to imagine it starts to sound a bit unreasonable and certainly unrealistic. We start to look for loopholes. We start to look for ways out, for ways to to soften the claim. Like much of what Jesus has to say, we want him to, to nuance his claim on us, to not make it so absolute. Don't our minds start to go to what ifs? I mean, we say, what if it is a real instance of oppression and injustice that could be solved through the use of force? Or what if it was your family? Or what if it was to help the innocent? These are all questions of discernment. But here, at least, Jesus is not going to help us. Because Jesus does not answer those what-if questions. Or if he does, he only does so by telling us to love our enemies and to do good to those who hate us, who would look to harm us. Jesus does not let us off the hook. He does not say, do good to your enemies except in cases of X and Y and Z. Jesus' claim on us to love our enemies is absolute. Absolute. And also part of a bigger picture. For for Jesus, loving our enemies is what it looks like for us to repent. That is to say, to change our hearts and minds to God's way of looking at the world. Loving our enemies is what it looks like for us to believe in the good news, in the gospel, and in the coming of God's kingdom. Loving our enemies is what it looks like for us to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. We can love our enemies because Jesus loves our enemies. We can love our enemies because God loves our enemies. Indeed, 
God loves God's own enemies. And God's love for God's enemies is revealed in the cross and death of Jesus. God absorbs human hatred and human enmity, absorbs our violence, and then transforms it into new life. For indeed, God's love for God's enemies is also revealed in the resurrection of Jesus. God makes peace through the absorption and transformation of violence, not in its transmission, not in its perpetuation. Therefore, when we love our enemies, we are assuming a role and a part in a bigger picture. For when we love our enemies, we are participating in God's healing of the world. When we love our enemies, we are participating in God's future, breaking into this very moment. When we resist and reject the use of violence, then new opportunities and new possibilities emerge, new paths are forged. New life will emerge from the ruins of the broken cycles of violence. But that does not mean that Jesus is advocating empty passivity, to turn the other cheek, to give the shirt as well as the coat, to give expecting nothing in return. These are examples of nonviolent direct action grounded in the hope and the potential that God will transform degradation into respect for dignity, that God will transform misery into joy, and that God will transform enmity into love. We are not meant to be passive, but active in the world, working for justice and working for peace. But in a world enthralled by violence, that means that we are called to participate in the transformation of injustice by using the mysterious power of nonviolence. For you see, in a world captivated by violence, to be nonviolent is to be truly courageous. To be nonviolent is to be truly creative. To be nonviolent is to be truly free. The old Christian peace protesters who advocated for the abolition of nuclear weapons used to proclaim, Christ is risen, disarm now. They put the question to us, just as Jesus puts the question to us. How can our world be changed by a rejection of violence? How might the world be transformed if we laid down our arms? And their vision invites us into to new what-if questions. What if we loved our enemies? What if we treated others as we would wish to be treated? What if we forgave others just as we have been forgiven? Just what might the world look like then? Amen.